This podcast is sponsored by Green Skies Analytics, where they do everything tech-related, but only for internal audit. Although compliance and risk management, y'all are cool too, so feel free to check it out also. To find out more, please visit greenskiesanalytics.com, but it's more likely that you're just going to Google it. So to find out more, please Google Green Skies Analytics. Today we have Paul Newton, the founder of Bark Lab. That's Bark, B-A-R-Q-U-E Labs. Um, Paul is a former controller and CFO and a former head of analytics at a mid-market CPA firm where he kind of got his background in, in working with auditors and accountants and such uh, in developing some of the analytics tools that he has since developed. Uh, on the show, Paul talks about the pain points he's helping solve with analytics, why we can't just use Excel, although there are certainly use cases for Excel. Uh, Paul's analytics tool of choice, and then analytics use cases relative to audit, which are always interesting to understand what other people are doing and um, what else can be done with analytics and data. Paul's two primary products are a P-Card analytics tool that has <laughs> over 80 analytics tests built in. Um, so Paul speaks to it a little bit on the show, but you basically take your data, upload it to the tool securely, and it does all the work for you. Um, Paul also has a grant monitoring analytics tool for higher education. So if that's of any interest to the listeners, uh, hit Paul up on LinkedIn or shoot him a message through his website. All right, here we go. Paul, I'm in analytics too. I know it can be pretty brutal for a lot of folks, especially that are new to analytics. I think that's why we haven't seen the adoption of analytics in audit um, that maybe we were expecting 20, 30 years ago. Um, so like, what are the pain points that you're solving with analytics? Yeah, I'd say we solved two pretty comprehensive uh, problems uh, with analytics. First of all, you can't do analytics uh, without any kind of workable data. You know? And data comes in all sorts of forms of messiness. Um, so the first thing is to do is to is to do the transformations to the data to get it in a format that makes it useful and workable. So the first thing we really do with the data is, is transform it in an automated fashion. And I think it has to be automated because uh, there is a lot to make the data really useful. There's a lot you have to do with it. Um, so things like renaming um, um, fields or uh, so if you've got Amazon or AMZ uh, in a, as, as a merchant or a vendor, you want to rename it so that it's Amazon so that you can group it with all the other Amazon transactions. You want to align the dates so that you've got year and month and week data in there as well that you can use with. Uh, you want to uh, separate columns so that uh, you, you're separating out like journal ID and, and, and um, line numbers, for example. You format uh, like removing uh, NAs and um, you know all caps and then eliminating entries that are, are uh, offsetting. And then finally, the most important thing we do, which is, which is mapping, because at the mapping stage, that's where you're able to impart your business logic onto, onto the data set. So, what, so what, uh, for those that don't know, what do you mean by mapping? So think about your VLOOKUPs in, uh, in Excel, um, but just a lot more of them, right? So if you VLOOKUP, you have a primary key and you go search for something and it pulls in another field. It's the same thing we do with mapping. So a simple case would be your account, uh, account number and you have an account description or account rollup, you know, um, so that you pull in uh, through your VLOOKUPs or your, or your mapping um, to pull in that additional data so you've got it in a workable format and it's a lot more meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. uh, in our, for example, in our PCAR analytics app that we have, um, we use the merchant, car, uh, uh, merchant category code um, to 
impart a lot of our, our logic on it. So roll-ups into uh, different categories, items that we think are, are, are riskier than others, uh, all kind of derived from the merchant category code. And that becomes a key part of our um, process of, of identifying problem transactions. So I think all of this is a lot of work and it can be a bit boring. And that's why I think automation uh, is so important because it only needs to be done once, but you need to do it well. And then you've got that same thing every time you can just update your data with a new data set every month or every so on, so often, so that it really is useful to you and you can start using it. The second thing we do is um, we make the search for insights a lot more, a lot more efficient. How many times have you had to hunt through an Excel table um, where you're not really sure what you're looking for, or um, you're just trying to find some vague ideas of some threads that you might follow or hoping to stumble across something? But we actually flip that around and we say, we know what we want to go look for, and we build the algorithms to go look for it in the data. So by doing that, what we've actually done is we've said, uh, we're going to interrogate the data for everything that we think might be of interest. Every single line is going to get looked at. Um, and because we're building out the reusable uh, algorithms to go and do this, it means we can afford to build low likelihood tests. So yeah. often low likelihood things don't get looked at because um, we just don't have the time or the bandwidth to do so. And it's probably not there anyway. Well, we actually go look for those things now because the cost of doing so is a fraction of a second uh, to go and check that something's not there. If it is there, well, it was well worth but if it's not there, the cost is, is negligible at the moment. So we, we do a lot of those. We also kind of build in some of the more complex uh, tests that are really difficult to do. Maybe it requires multiple stages. Maybe you've got to do some staging apps um, so that you can pull the data in something, identify the top, um, the top employers or the top vendors who, who, who you want to go look at, and then the next stage is to drill down on them. So all of that we encompass within a single test. And that takes away the complexity from, uh, from our clients who can just go and run the test without necessarily knowing what goes on in the background. So we, we make it a whole lot easier in those terms. Yeah. Uh, and I'd say those are the two biggest things we do. Yeah. I always think it's interesting to ask analytics folks this because it always surprises me. It seems like, like we could use analytics to go find the answer that we're looking for. But I know sometimes I've built um, you know, a program or a tool or however you want to phrase it uh, and, and and analytics, I've built a, an analysis. I've done an analysis for a client before and didn't even realize really the value that I was adding until after the fact. So I showed it to them and they went, oh, you know what? We love this because, well, ever th this instance, they basically had access to all the data. So part of the project was, you know, sourcing in from different uh, data sources and then combining it all together. And then we put it in this like lovely dashboard and which I thought was fantastic. And the analyst that was actually going to be doing the analysis said, you know what, one of my favorite things about this is I have access to all the data now and I don't have to go hunt and peck in all these different systems. And I thought, you know, I didn't even realize that was, you know, that much of a value add to them, but it really was. So uh, it's a long winded way of saying, have you ever come across something like that where like you've done a project and you thought, oh, this is the thing that they care about. Um, this is, you know, what they asked for. And then they say, Hey, you know what? We actually really, really like this piece of it also. Have you, have you done something similar to that? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of times uh, we built something and I'm really particularly proud or uh, of a single test that I think is fantastically clever. Right. Uh, and the client says, well, this can't possibly happen. You know, our system doesn't allow it. And interesting enough, because 
that's where we know we've done something, even though we didn't realize we were doing something just by very finding something that the understanding was that the uh, system wouldn't allow such a test. So it might be approving a certain type of expense, or it might be um, something else where, you know, the system is supposed to block those kind of transactions. Um, but, you know, uh, and then the response from the client might be, well, that's impossible. A system doesn't allow it. But here we are looking at the results of a test where it clearly does allow it. Uh, and we'll often dig in and find out. And generally what happens is that the system mostly doesn't allow it, but there are circumstances when it does, or there are ways that kind of a subsystem actually allows it or something where nevertheless it shows up in the data. So those are actually times where without really realizing what we've uh, we set out, what we were trying to do, um, we've actually identified uh, a process uh, deficiency where even if it, if it was audited, but certainly if it wasn't, um, the client wasn't aware that there was this gap in their process because um, regardless of the understanding, the data is actually getting through or the transactions are getting through that, that run foul of that um, assumption that they've been made. So that, that's always kind of a good sign where, you know, the client says this can't possibly happen, yet we're looking at the outcome. You know? <laughs> a recent example of a surprise came from our standard reclass analysis of journal lines uh, at a higher education client. So typically for every data set we look at, uh, we remove eliminating entries from our working data and put them to the side. Uh, the idea being that these zero dollar uh, offsetting entries don't add any informational value to our, to our working data sets. So we, we just carve them out and put them to the side. But in this case, the volume of the reclasses was noticeable and it did surprise our client because they knew that there were reclasses going on as, as, as they needed to be, but they're just the prevalence took them by surprise. So even if all these transactions are perfectly legitimate, all these reclasses, it does lend a question as to the efficiency of the process that um, is, are they really necessary? So that, that was quite a, quite a good um, case where just part of our standard operating procedure actually was uh, resulted in, in a surprise, but valuable information to our client, you know? Yeah. And that's not even a, like necessarily an audit issue, but that's an, more of an operational issue that you identified, right? And Hey, look at all these reclasses that are going on. Um, there needs to be a fix somewhere because of what of the, the amount of time wasted in doing all those between the folks that are doing the reclass and accounting and all those folks. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, quite often you've, you know, the lines between the operational and the accounting side are, are blurred when you're actually getting into the data, you know, because of, like, I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of the overlap between trying to run a business better and the things that, um, an auditor is kind of looking at, there's a lot of the same, particularly when you're looking at the data, you know, I think, um, there's a bit of a convergence now as you start to look at the analytics that the things that, are interesting are the things that lots of different disciplines within an organization would find of interest. Something that I find quite often, but still surprises me uh, along with the client is just the audacity of some of the employees or vendors in what they ask the company to pay for. I mean, vendors may double bill for employee time or charge rates that are markedly different from the rate card. Employees do their grocery shopping or put P, uh, P card, uh, put their own personal uh, company's charges on the um, P card. Um, and these are things that they probably got away with uh, previously, um, as they're really difficult to identify with conventional means, but um, pretty easy with analytics. And although I now kind of sort of expect to see some of these things, it still surprises me when I do see them. Yeah. And it really surprises the client. I had someone ask me the other day, we we're talking about continuous monitoring. This is a chief audit executive. And they were saying, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're pretty good in Excel or we want to do continuous monitoring how can we do that in Excel? And I 
just had to tell them, I mean, you can probably write some VBA, but if you're not already doing that, that's going to be pretty tough to figure out. And even then you're going to have just um, issues with the amount of data and keeping, keeping up with it. Um, and so I think Excel is fantastic for a lot of things. I don't think that it is for that case, but what, so other than that, why can't we just use Excel? Like what are you using? What are the tools that you're using and why can't we just, just use Excel? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think everything you can do in Excel, you can theoretically do with a calculator. <laughs> you never would because it's hugely inefficient. And in practice, you can't really do some of the things with a calculator that Excel can do, you know? So because of that, we all learned how to use spreadsheets and, you know, simply because they were far superior to the alternatives. And now that we've all learned how to use it, we benefit from that, you know, investment with our, with our increased productivity. And I think today's analytics tools offer you a similar jump in productivity over Excel. It's mainly through the ability to automate and to generate better insights. Um, and it's not that you can't theoretically do it in Excel. It's just that new tools have come along that are specifically made to facilitate the automation of complex algorithms or bots or what have you, you know? A couple of years ago, I was watching a colleague uh, manually sift through Excel lines, trying to, you know, catch those offsetting entries, you know? And it wasn't a large data set. It was about 20,000 lines, but it looked to be an incredibly boring and thankless task, you know, which makes it perfect for analytics, you know? Um, so, I wrote a function that identified kind of the desired offsetting lines, and it took me a couple of hours to do it, you know. But by the time I'd, I'd solved this problem, you know, uh, my colleague had, had identified about a third of the amount of the um, offsetting entries that I have. So not only was that a more efficient process in, to build it in this particular situation, but once I'd built it, I had that knowledge to be able to use time and time again, you know. Uh, I frequently use it in most of the work, uh, most of the uh, work we do for our clients. That function is part of our um, just operating, standard operating procedure. Mm -hmm. Just get rid of the uh, non-informational entries. Um, and we use it time and time again. So that, that becomes something that is so valuable to, uh, to how we run our analysis. Um, and it's absolutely no effort. So I think those are the, things where Excel would really struggle to do that, uh, where once, once we've captured it, we can use it time and time again. So I think that's really a big advantage over Excel. And regarding continuous monitoring, I once helped uh, the internal audit department of a financial institution validate um, starting balances on a system migration. They had a whole team doing the actual migration, uh, but wanted the internal audit group to validate the integrity of the migration process. So their initial uh, plan was Excel-based, uh, and it was to sample a certain number of lines and, and ensure that the end state could be derived from the, from the source data, you know, for names and balances and, and what have you uh, in the, in the um, target system. So I got involved, and I said, why not check everything, which was about 20 million lines of data. So we thought... We, so we wrote the um, we wrote the migration rules out, you know, so that you know to translate from the source data into what we thought the end state should be, and we, and we compared the two, you know. And I'd, I'd note that this would have been a very reckless way to actually do the migration, but as a validation process, it was pretty easy uh, and a very valuable way of identifying kind of gaps. So when I found a discrepancy, 
I'd recheck my interpretation of the rules and, and whatnot, and I'd either re-edit, re-change the rule myself and in, in our scripts and, and rerun it, or I'd turn it over to um, the migration team with, with a question of, you know, which one should it be? So we actually, um, we actually got quite a bit of uh, interaction with the migration team and internal audit was actually able to pay quite a, quite a helpful role in this, in this uh, kind of process. But every night, um, you know, they'd push through their, the migration team would push through the changes. Uh, the next morning, uh, I'd run uh, the report again, and we'd know exactly what fitted and what didn't and what, where our kind of uh, variances were. You know? um, one morning, we got in there, and they said, oh, we've had to push through something mid-morning. You know, I'm so sorry about it. all the effort from last night's work has been wasted. And my response at that point was that it didn't really matter because it wasn't me doing the work. It was the machine. Everything had already been built. So to run it once, to run it 10 times makes absolutely no difference once it's been built. Uh, so we ran it. And by mid-morning, we were back up, back up to uh, back on plan again, uh, timing-wise. And it's really, that's to me, is kind of what the, the benefits of, of analytics today, the tools let you do. It's so easy to kind of automate really complex um, routines and takes away the manual effort um, and the inconsistency because every time you run it, you're running exactly what you know you're running, you know? So I think, I think those are kind of the big differences with um, using contemporary analytics tools for um, continuous monitoring and Excel. So we, did, we talked about there is value in, in using Excel, but there's also limitations. What are you using since you're, that's, since you're not using Excel, what are you using? I use R, which along with Python are the two open source programming language for analytics. And, and for those that, it's, those that don't know, that's literally the letter R. That's the programming language, yeah. So if you yes, Google sir. it, R, the letter R, and then probably type in programming language if you want to learn a little bit more about it. If you just type in the letter R, I'm not sure what comes up. Actually, I'm kind of curious. Let me see. All right, if we just type in the letter R... Nope, it comes up. So you can just Google the letter R and um, that's what, what Paul's using. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So um, personally, I, I use R as really as a personal preference. I, I come from Excel background. I did all my analysis in Excel previously. Um, and I think as a non-programmer uh, coming from Excel, R is pretty intuitive. There's a lot of things in the, um, that that make sense and seem you know easy to adopt, you know? R has this tidyverse collection of packages that are really intuitive for someone coming from Excel and you can pick it up quite easily, you know? I also use the Shiny package, which lets me build, uh, lets, lets me build uh, interactive web apps. You know? Python is more intuitive for developers uh, and, it's, and it's the most popular language for data scientists. I don't think it's as quite as intuitive for people coming from Excel to pick up. But, you know, neither is easy to learn and, and it does take patience uh, to learn it, um, to learn either of them. But there is a world of, of resources out there. There's free online courses. There's uh, strong communities for both, both programming languages. So if you're willing to invest the time and the effort, there's a lot out there that you can, you can pick up um, on your own. And, and the skills are portable, you know, because they're open source, you can, you can take them with you and to, your, to any sort of... Um, any sort of business or job, um, they're all kind of um, good skills to have. And I think more and more people are coming out of college today, having taken a semester or two of R or Python, you know, so, uh, you know, the resources are, are growing, the adoptions um, widespread, and I don't think either of them are going away. Yeah. 
there was some big news last week in the world of R. Um, Microsoft has decided to drop their own proprietary um, distribution or version of R and go with the open source distribution. Um, and this should pave the way for a much better integration of, of R into the Microsoft um, stack, including Power BI, you know, as well as a wider R adoption. You know? Today, heavy analytics um, and machine learning is, is typically done outside of the BI tools. You know? uh, it's usually done directly in R or Python, and then the results are imported back into, into, into the, the visualization tool. You know? Um, so this move by Microsoft should make the integration better, um, but it also points to the fact that Python and R are going to remain the go-to analytics engines for these major platforms. Perfect. And you mentioned that analytics is hard to learn. Um, R and Python are hard to learn. It takes patience, uh, especially if you're coming from you know Excel to R. Um, so I've asked this question recently. How are you making analytics? easier. Yeah. I mean, good analytics, a combination of workable data, uh, business context and technical know-how, you know, but because we only have a plan on solving each little item once, we can afford to actually take the time to, to tackle complex problems. So we had a client uh, who asked us to identify when the highest ranked person at an expensive meal didn't actually pick up the tab. And especially when it was a direct report of theirs who picked up the tab, you know? Mm. So that's, any, everybody know, everybody's come across those as being kind of a policy in the past, but it's really actually hard to implement, you know, or, or to, to actually find out. This particular company did have the people who attended the meal. Um, so we ended up actually identifying exactly whether, you know, the, the highest ranked person at the table picked up the meal. And we did it because we we're able to pull from the manager field. So it had an employee and, and we also knew who their manager was. We built an org chart of the uh, organization based on all the manager buildup. Then we decided who was the highest ranked person at the table, who actually picked up the meal. And we we're able to say, identify those discrepancies. Mm. And that was quite a complex um, problem to solve. But to the client, it was nothing because it was all abstracted from them. You know, we'd, we'd solved it. We packaged it up in our function. And to them, it was just, were the answers useful or not? You know, was it meaningful uh, when we said that this is, a, this is a meal that you want to look at? And it was, you know. So we, we make it all analytics easy because we take the complexity and we put it behind the curtain. So our clients don't ever have to really encounter it. They can just decide which test they want to run, press go, and they get the results that um, are hopefully meaningful to them. So from your data analytics perspective, what advice do you have for the listeners? I think um, if you have the data available, you should be thoroughly testing it today. You know, um, I think any underlying problems that you have with your processes will emerge from an examination of the data. You know, I think auditing processes is, is a useful proxy when you can't see what's, what's going on. But it's a theoretical control. And when you actually have the data, you should be uh, really interrogating the data to find out what's really going on in the business. Um, a manager who proves all is, gonna, all is always going to be a gap, let alone the things you can't possibly know about. But you can know about those by examining the data. So I, I, we have the tools nowadays. Uh, so we really should be uh, understanding what's going on in the, in the actual transactions, the actual data that, that we're interested in. I also think um, 
generally as a philosophy, um, if you do something more than twice, you really should be looking to automate it. You know, the tools are there. Uh, the know-how might take a little bit of get, getting up to speed on, but this whole concept of automating as much as you can is one of the most liberating philosophies I've ever adopted. Um, so um, I think it's it's really good to kind of incorporate things uh, with a mind to reusing them. You know, and build everything for reuse. Look for patterns, uh, not just high dollar exceptions. Um, someone who puts all the groceries on a company card is a higher risk for other problems. Um, and it's now cost effective to look beyond high dollar risks. You know, if you build a test for it, it takes a fraction of a second to run it. So you should be looking for patterns and, and examining even things that you think maybe aren't, aren't worth looking at uh, under the previous kind of method of identifying things. And then finally, I'd say that um, just know that that not much in audit analytics actually calls for a machine learning solution. There's an unbelievable amount of low-hanging fruit that we can grab with rules-based algorithms. So don't do machine learning for the sake of machine learning. Use the tool that does the job in the simplest way. Because remember, you need to minimize false positives and then explain why something is a finding. So those would be my, um, my data-centric um, tidbits of advice. I really like that if you do it more than twice, you should think, or you should look for ways to automate it. That's that's really good. And then looking for patterns rather than always just high dollar exceptions. That's a really good way to put that also because that's where we we tend to look because oh that's you know it's a two million dollar transaction. That's the high risk one. Let's go investigate the hell out of it. When really there's maybe a, a, another pattern or an underlying pattern that might lead to maybe a um, an actual finding or something like that. So uh, really like that. I think that is really good advice. Yeah. I think that made sense when you had a limited time to go and look for things, go look at the high dollar things, you know, um, they're the most likely to be really impactful, but that's, I think changed a little bit because now you've, you've got the scope to go look at everything and you've got the ability to do it. So that's a little bit of a, of a change in thinking, but, but I, there's, in, there's an, enough stuff there that I, I think is of interest. Yeah. And you've talked about some of the projects that you've worked on. I know you mentioned PCARDs a couple of times. What kind of, what kind of stuff do you have in the works? Well, we've got um, two, um, two products at, at Bark Labs. We have a commercial and purchase card analytics app, uh, which looks at all the transactions in a, in a company's uh, purchase or corporate card program and runs about 80 uh, individual tests against each transaction line that um, a lot of it's kind of built on things that you'd expect, you know, um, shouldn't be this kind of um, category of spend, but there's also a lot of other kind of, um, you know, specific things that we've identified as being higher risk from our experience that we've incorporated into the, into the um, application. So that by pressing the button, you get to run, you know, 80 different test cases against all the data and, and really understand what's being spent in, on, on the card program. The second application we have is a, a university grant management application, um, which really looks at all the transactions relating to university grants and analyzes them to make sure that they're you know, broadly in compliance and um, that um, the funds are being spent as, as, as expected. All right, Paul, really appreciate your perspective, especially as someone who wasn't necessarily directly in internal audit, um, but obviously has a lot of experience with audit and kind of what you're bringing to auditors and the analytics that you're bringing to them. Uh, really appreciate that and uh, really appreciate you coming on and, and taking the time to kind of educate some auditors on 
analytics and things that can be done with it and, and kind of your approach. So thank you again, Paul, very much for coming on. No, thanks for having me on, Trent. It's, it's, it's been good. Um, I just think that um, there are a lot of use cases out there for auto analytics and we're only starting to scratch the surface. So it's been fun and um, talk to you soon. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you please consider leaving a rating on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on right now? It really makes a difference in helping to convince hard to get guests to come on the show. I did it and it only took me 16 seconds to give myself a five-star rating. So it shouldn't take uh, too much longer than that. Thank you very much for listening.